We'll turn now, if you would, uh, to Titus chapter 3. I was driving home uh, one evening this last week uh, down a country road when I noticed some cows uh, grazing in the ditch. In fact, as I was driving about 80 kilometers an hour, one of these cows walked right out into the road in front of me, came to a complete stop, kind of scared it back down to the ditch, back towards its pasture. But I realized, uh, okay, this, this farmer's cows are getting out some way, somehow. I didn't know whose cows they were. Frankly, I just kind of wanted to get home. But as I thought about it, I thought, well, you know, if those were my cows, I'd want to know. I mean, it's supposed to be 37 plus degrees tomorrow. Whoever, Whatever farmer this is, he's probably got enough problems to worry about besides trying to track all these cows uh, down come morning. So as I was sitting there stopped, I looked over across the street at a house there and noticed that there was a car sitting in the driveway, uh, obviously running with people in it. So I just pulled into the drive there and uh, mentioned, hey, I was just driving by, I live up the road, and uh, just right around the corner, I noticed that the, the cows right across the street just got out and they're coming across the road your way. And did you know whose cows they are? And uh, offered to call the farmer if, or if they knew who it was or anything like that. And as soon as I made some of those comments, my comments were met with nothing uh, but one smart remark or venomous and, and vitriolic word after another, like I had poked the hornet's nest or something. And so after apologizing, I said, I'm really sorry to bother you and inconvenience you. I pulled away, uh, hopped, hopped in my car, called up a farmer I didn't know and just said, hey, do you know whose cows they are? I noticed they're all getting out. And that farmer thankfully did know and offered to make the phone call to that other guy. But that earlier conversation really bothered me. When I got back in my car and was driving home, I was just bothered. Why is our world like this? Why is it this way? Why are some people actually just extremely, extremely difficult? Why does it seem like our world is such a mess? We live in a broken world with broken people, don't we? And that's the exact world that Titus chapter 3, 1 to 8, teaches you and I to live in. According to verse 3, the society in which you live, work, and play, here's how the people in, in that world and in that society are described. That world consists of people, according to verse 3, who are foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, and they pass their days in malice and envy, and they feel and express hate. Toward one another. People can be difficult to interact with in our world, can't they? Thankfully, due to God's common grace, so that's not all we see. We actually look out and and it would appear at times that we see a lot of good. We often see virtue displayed as well in the people around us. But even when we see virtue, it almost seems like it's shrouded in a brokenness. And as you relate to society around you, I think... Uh, that you and I are probably going to be tempted towards one of two pitfalls, maybe both at different times. Either one, you might be tempted to just kind of amalgamate into society and look and behave just like it. I mean, society is offering all the cues. I'm just going to live the exact same way. Or two, on the flip side of that, you might be tempted to retreat and cloister yourself away from society and not engage it. But there's a better road that actually lies right between both of those two pitfalls. God wants you to portray Christ clearly to society. And that is what Titus 3, 1 to 8 is all about. So I'd ask you to look with me at this passage as I read it. Paul tells Titus, who is ministering on the island of Crete, 
Remind them, remind the Cretans to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness of loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. By the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly. Through Jesus Christ, our Savior. So that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The saying is trustworthy. And I want you to insist on these things. So that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. Titus 3 begins with the words, remind them. A large part of ministry is actually just very simply reminding people of what they already know. Often the great need of the church is not to be taught some new, greater, deeper truth, but simply to be reminded to practice the truths that are already known. And that's my goal this morning, to remind you of a few things, particularly about your relation to society. So we have three reminders from this text. Number one, don't forget how to live your new life. And particularly in relation to the world or the society around you, your community, the people you interact with who haven't yet met Jesus. As we enter Titus chapter 3, the focus shifts from the Christian's relationship, it shifts to, to the Christian's relationship with society. Back up in verse 2, uh, chapter, or chapter 2, a lot of that chapter gave you the feel of kind of in-house and how Christians relate to each other. For example, older women teach the younger women to live like this. And a lot of it's Christians and how they relate to each other. But once you get to chapter 3, that shifts. Chapter 2 taught us how the grace of God should change how we relate to each other. And now here in chapter 3, it explains how the grace of God should cause us to relate to society. What should your public life look like? Uh, How are you supposed to live in the public arena, in your workplace, in your community, in your relationship uh, to, to your country as a citizen? How should you relate in all of those different realms? Titus is to remind the Cretans not to forget how to live their new life before outsiders, people who have yet to meet Jesus. And like the Cretans, you and I need these same reminders. So what does he remind them of? Verse 1, remember to guard your public testimony. Look at verse 1. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities to be obedient, and to be ready for every good work. You need to be submissive and obedient to government authority. If you're going to portray Christ clearly and to, to outsiders, and that is very much the goal. If you're going to portray Christ clearly to your society, you need to be an exemplary citizen of your country. And according to verse 1, that involves both submission and obedience to the government authority. Um, and you may go, well, I saw submission, but not obedience. Actually, the, the underlying 
or you may go, well, what is, what's the context there for that word obedience? It's actually a, a compound Greek word that, that talks, the one half of the word means obedience and the other half means authority. And it's talking about obeying authorities and it comes right after government uh, officials. And I think we could also broaden it. The Christians are just people who anytime there's authority in their life, they know how to place themselves under it. And submission, I think we could say, is the attitude and obedience is the activity and both are critical to your testimony. The Christian recognizes that the governing authorities are in charge not just because they won an election or people liked them, but because God put them there. And as Christians, it's our great hope. In fact, biblically, it should even be our prayer that we can simultaneously obey God and the government without those things colliding and coming into great, great tension where we're forced to choose between the two. Um, But those two responsibilities can conflict, can't they? They conflict when the government commands what God forbids or when the government forbids what God commands and then we've got a big problem. And in that instance, we must obey God rather than men. And I think we've all learned over the last 18 months that sometimes it can feel like some of those lines are actually blurry and hard to sort through and decisions can be quite difficult, leaving us feeling enormous, enormous amounts of tension. But this morning, really, all I want to do is ask you this. Is submission and obedience to the government your M.O., so to speak? As a minister of the gospel, it's actually my God-given duty to remind you that it needs to be, that it needs to be your M.O., that disposition, that attitude, that activity. Because what's at stake is the testimony of the gospel. Uh, Also, not only be submissive and obedient to government authority, but verse 1, be ready to do good to those around you. Remember, the, the context is, is not so much in here. It's out there. It is where Titus is, or Paul is focusing these verses. The end of verse 1 says, you should be ready. You should be prepared, ready, and willing to go for every good work. You can't do everything. But you should be ready to be actively uh, doing good. There's something I think that, that is really important here. I, I want to give you three words and ask you this. Which of the following three words best describes how the Christian should relate to his community and the society in which he lives? Here's your three words. Negatively, neutrally, or positively. Well, obviously, it's, it can't be negatively. I think we might be really tempted to just kind of be neutral when it comes to our society, not really engage it much, not really do much in it. Not really actively exercise good works. But I think the word based on on this phrase would have to be positively. It's positive. You should be ready, willing, and prepared to do good. Do every good work. You should be ready to perform good deeds towards sinful people. The church should individually, the individuals of it, and then collectively do good to the people all around them. Remember to guard your public testimony. Also, verse 2, remember to guard your personal relationships. Verse 2, look at it with me if you would. He says, remind them to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. Here we're given a few more specifics about what our interactions with society should be like. 
when you show up at work in the morning, when you interact with your neighbors, when, when you talk with some uh, customer service person on the phone, wherever you are, whatever you're doing, as you interact with people, what should that look like? Well, verse 2, we're reminded to speak evil of no one. Here's a good way to mar your testimony, where you live, work, and play. Speak evil of other people. Insult other people. Grumble about other people. Do that and your co-workers and your neighbors and all the people you interact with, they're just going to be lining up to hear you tell them more about Jesus, right? No. They're like, that's so-and-so. Apparently he's a Christian, but man, I, I would nothing to do. Like he's just like us. He's no different. The problem is we've all done that. We've all spoken evil of people. And we need this reminder to speak evil of no one. And also avoid quarreling and arguing. You should be a peacemaker in your society. Our society is not governed by peace. It's not governed by people getting along. I mean, where you work, is it just like this wonderful, peaceful place? Oh, there may be pockets of that, but there's probably other pockets where it's not that way. Uh, as you gather with your family for family gatherings and and maybe you have people in your family who know Christ as their Savior, and maybe you have a large portion of your family that doesn't, and you gather together with them. God wants you to be the person in that midst that, I'm here for peace. I'm not putting fuel on a fire. I, 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 that's not what I do as a Christian. If you're one who quarrels, fights, and argues with others, what they will see is selfishness and pride. And that's exactly what James says is behind fighting and quarreling. They will see that, not Jesus, not the gospel. And next, we're reminded to be gentle. When people interact with you, what are they going to get? What God wants them to see and get is gentleness, kindness, consideration of the other person and whatever their circumstance might be at that particular moment. These type of things put Jesus Christ on display for people who have not yet met him. And next, demonstrate true humility to all people. At the end of the list, in verse 2 there, we read these words, show perfect courtesy toward all people. Show all courtesy towards all people. When you read those words, actually, in the original language, it's a bit confusing. Uh, it's, it's unclear if those words represent an additional item on the list that's just kind of like every other one. Or if those words speak to the manner in which everything on, uh, else on the list should be done. And that seems actually to be very likely. The idea would be something like this. As you submit and obey the government, as you do good deeds and try to bless the people around you, as you try to avoid quarreling and fighting and speak evil of other people and all of those things that you're doing, do it with a full measure of humility. Bible versions translate the word uh, that the ESV here is translated courtesy with a lot of different words. If you were to look through different translations, you'd see words like gentleness, uh, meekness, consideration, humility. And the idea is this. God wants you as you live your life with society and the people all around you to exercise a full dose, a full measure of humility and graciousness. And on the flip side of that, pride and arrogance will kill your testimony with the lost. 
show all humility to all people, even those that are difficult. We've had some unwanted animals show up around our house <laughs> in recent years, and it's just you sort of like walk out the back door, and there they are. And I remember a couple years back, I walked out, and this porcupine's going across the backyard, climbing up in a tree that's, I don't know, 20 feet behind the back door. <laughs> it's a porcupine. I actually thought that porcupines would like could shoot you from far away, and then I learned that that's not how it works. But this porcupine showed up. Well, I don't really, even if you kind of had to touch it to get hit by it, I still don't really want it in my backyard. You know, the cat's like a plaything and goes up and whoosh, all in its face or whatever. The kids go up, hey, what's this thing? And they get a little too close or it feels threatened and out come the quills. If you touch it, you're going to get shot. We've also had some feral cats show up. Some don't seem so bad and some are just really nasty. We had this huge black cat show up. I think it realized there was cat food on her back porch and it's like trying to run our cat off of its turf. This thing's hissing at a big cat, just hissing at everybody. I don't like this thing. I don't want it around. I bet if you tried to touch that cat, you'd either get bit or scratched. Just a couple weeks back, I went out to water the garden, which is kind of out in the middle of our front lawn area. And as I was walking out there, I got out near the garden and I looked and running across the front yard was this black and white animal with this big fluffy tail going behind it, running all over. I thought, oh my goodness, what is that? And how many of them are there? It was a skunk. Well, I don't like skunks. I don't want that anywhere near my house. I don't want my kids to accidentally interact with it because one, I don't want them to experience that. And number two, I don't really want our house to smell like that or our property. If you touch a skunk, you're going to get sprayed. It's best to just stay away. You know it's possible to be a porcupine, feral cat, or skunk kind of Christian in your society? And, and there are a lot of Christians who are. You can be that person in your society and in your neighborhood and your workplace. When you don't exercise verses 1 and 2, the world steps back and they look at you and they go, eh, they're already weird. And also, if I go near them, I'm going to get it. And the opposite should be, like, there's the grace and the kindness and the love and the good deeds where people see God's people and they go, what is up with them? Like, I just don't get it. This doesn't compute in a really good way. Because God wants you to portray Christ clearly to society. Don't forget how to live your new life. It matters how you talk on the phone, how you interact with your coworkers, how how you interact with your neighbors, and so many other realms. But knowing that can be challenging uh, for us to relate to society as we should. We can know it, and it can still be hard. And so God is quick to remind us of something else that's all too easily forgotten. It's like God says, there's another thing you really need to remember and keep in mind as you live your life in this world. Second reminder, don't forget how corrupt you once were. Verse 3 explains that we should live verses 1 and 2. And the logic comes in verse 3. Because we ourselves were once just like the people we may struggle with. Remember what it was like before you trusted Christ as your Savior? Remind them, Paul says to Titus. Don't forget how corrupt you once were. And he's probably talking to people who haven't even been saved that long. Six months, a year, three years, maybe some of them ten years. 
but how quickly God's people can forget the pit from which they, they were drawn out of. Remember how corrupt your thinking was. Look at verse 3. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. You were foolish. You were spiritually obtuse, ignorant of God and his ways, living in a way that very much revealed that. You were warped in your wicked thinking. You were disobedient. You broke God's laws and commands with blatant disregards. You were an unruly person, an ungovernable person by the laws of God. You ignored God's standards and laws. And we also read in verse 3 that you were led astray. Think about the implication of that. That phrase implies actually that you were following someone. You were being led by something. What was it? Well, we know from Scripture that you were being led astray probably by the world, probably by your own flesh, and ultimately by the devil himself. You were duped. Remember how corrupt your thinking was? Remember your attitudes and thought processes? Remember how corrupt your patterns were? Verse 3 continues with things like this. You were slaves to various passions and pleasures. Uh, You've since been set free. You've been unshackled. Your chains are gone. But you too once pursued your own little niche set of wicked passions and pleasures. And frankly, I think if you're honest, you might even be thinking of what some of those are because they're still lingering a little bit. <laughs> you're still battling them. You're still, they still seem to have some roots down in the soil of your heart. You're probably still fighting some of those and you passed your days before you met Jesus, so to speak, in malice and envy. There was a maliciousness about you. And actually you go, no, I I was never a malicious person. There was a maliciousness about you probably from the time you were a small child. And if you doubt that, maybe you should should just ask mom or dad what it was like when you were three. (laughs) And envy burned within you. There were times when you could not stand to see or bear the thought of others enjoying what you were not enjoying. If I can't have that, they shouldn't have that too either. And if I can't enjoy that, they shouldn't enjoy that. And finally, you were hated by others and hateful towards others. There was hate in your heart towards people who wronged and hurt you. There was hate in your heart to to people who looked and behaved differently than you. You felt and you expressed hate just like we see in our world today. Our world is a place full of hate. People hate each other because their skin colors are different. People hate each other because they grew up in different geographic areas. People hate each other because their, their social, socioeconomic status is different. We live in a world absolutely, completely full of hate. Those things are who you once were. They shouldn't characterize you today, but don't forget that was you. God wants you to portray Christ clearly to society. Don't forget how corrupt you once were. I I think what God is driving at here is when you see all those people in your society, do you know who you need to see? Who do you need to see when you go to work and you interact with your coworker? 
Who, who do you need to see when, when you go to that family gathering and you see your brother or your sister or your mom or your dad who's not a Christian and they are doing so many things to bother you and creating so many problems? Who do you need to see when you look into their eyes and you see their anger or their selfishness or their pride? Who is it that you need to see? You need to see yourself. That's what Paul is driving at here. Do you know what happens when you forget who you once were? What's the great danger if the Cretans, six months or a year after coming to Christ, all of a sudden they forget all of, all of their past and who they once were? What happens when you forget who you once were? Well, you become proud. And you, you find yourself snubbing your nose at the people that verse 3 describes. And you look at yourself with arrogance and pride. And why are they so messed up? And unlike me, who apparently has it together. And you may even pull away from those people with revulsion. But on the flip side of that, when you remember, you know what? That was me. And frankly, not that long ago. When you think that way, you're actually quite humbled and you start to see the people all around you through a very, very different lens. When you were verse 3, something happened. God didn't disappear. He didn't pull away from you with, with revulsion and say, I mean, I want nothing to do with that person. Instead, Jesus Christ, we read, was born of a woman and he dwelt among men. The very people of verse 3. So that verse 4 actually starts this way. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior did what? It appeared. Through the coming of Jesus Christ and his work on the cross. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit didn't say, look at all those terrible, nasty people. Retreat. Instead, what God says is, look at all of those people and their poor, desperate condition, and he moves towards them. And he appears. And we read in verse 5 that when that happened, he saved us. If you want to portray Christ clearly to society, then reminder number three, don't forget how God saved you. Along those lines, there are a few specifics that you need to keep in mind. Remember that God saved you at a particular time. And apparently God thinks it's very important that we note when that particular time was. He saved you when you were just like society. That is verse 3. Remember Romans chapter 5 verse 8, I think such a great encouragement. While we were still sinners, when we were abominable, when there was nothing about us that warranted saving. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He saved you when you were just like society, when you were verse 3. And according to verse 4, he saved you when the beauty of Christ appeared. Verse 4 mentions the goodness and loving kindness of God appearing towards you. And it actually would seem like, well, back in chapter 2, that was a reference specifically to Christ coming to earth and his incarnation, his life and death and burial and resurrection. It seems like here it still has that. But it almost seems to, to have this point where, where you were regenerated and that point when God opened your eyes to actually see it. To see the appearing of his goodness and loving kindness. 
Jesus came and displayed his goodness and love towards you through his cross. John 10, or John chapter 20, verse 21, Jesus said this. He said, as the Father has sent me, how did God the Father send the Son into the world? Well, he sent him in this goodness and this loving kindness to sacrificially give his life to save. As the Father has sent me into the world, Jesus says, even so, now I'm sending you. I didn't leave you here to look pretty and nice. I left you here to do something. I left you here to share this message and engage the lost and go live out my goodness in the gospel in front of other people. God sent you into the world to portray the goodness and loving kindness of Jesus Christ to the people all around you who haven't met Jesus yet. And also, remember that God saved you for a particular reason. He didn't save you because of something in you. He saved you because of something in him. And that's what verse 5 reminds us of. He didn't save you because of something in you. Verse 5 says he saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness. You didn't climb out or crawl out of the pit that you were in in verse 3. You were lifted up out of that pit. God did something for you in spite of you. And if he hadn't done that, guess where you would still be today? In that same pit of destruction and sin. You would still be the person of verse 3. Imagine right now today, Sunday morning, July 4th, I think it is. Imagine if six months ago, 20 years ago, 30 years ago, whenever it was that God saved you, imagine if that never happened. Just, just try to fathom it. Where would you be this morning? What would you be doing? What would your marriage be like? What would your family be like? What would your work life be like? Would you be happy? Would you have joy? What would the last frankly, on just the human level, level, awful 18 months have looked like for you. I don't think it'd be pretty. And I know for myself as I look at that, I can imagine what that world would look like because there's still this thing called the flesh in me that wants to rule and reign and I know what directions it pulls me. I would have gone those ways. He didn't save you because of something in you. He saved you because of something in him. Verse 5 continues. He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. That's the reason you're saved. The undeserved, unmerited mercy of God. When you were the person of verse 3, God didn't move away from you in repulsion. He moved towards you in pity and compassion and mercy. And the point of this text, one of the big points is that God or to go and extend that mercy and compassion that was shown to you so that others might experience it too. It came to you and you experienced the grace and goodness and loving kindness of God and God wants to keep showing that to other people and the way that he intends to do that is through you. You're the messenger through your good deeds, through your life, through your words. And also remember that God saved you by a particular means. We see the means that God used there at the end of verse 5 and and then down through verse 6. He mentions uh, two things, or maybe they're kind of one thing combined together. He mentions the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit. He saved you by the washing of regeneration. The washing of regeneration refers to your second birth. 
You were regenerated, or we could say you were reborn. And that rebirth involved God washing you and cleansing you from your sin and from your defilement. You look at society and what do you see? You see the defilement, you see the filth, you see the sin. And I think we're being reminded here, that was you. And God did something for you. God came and he lifted you out of that pit and he washed you clean. By the blood of Jesus Christ. And he caused you to be reborn by the spirit of God. And way back in the Old Testament when God talked about doing that, he said, I will give you a new heart. Not a heart of stone, but a heart of flesh. Who did that for you? Who took your hardened heart and softened it? Who washed you and cleansed you? That was God. And he saved you by the renewal of the Holy Spirit. You are made a new creature in Christ. And we read in the New Testament that old things have passed away. All things have become new. And now the Spirit of God dwells within you and he's changing you. Look at verse 6. Actually, the end of verse 5 down into verse 6. It mentions the renewal of the Holy Spirit. And then speaking of the Holy Spirit, it says in verse 6, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. When you trusted in Christ, something happened. And it all goes back to the day of Pentecost. But when you trusted Christ as your Savior, he gave you his Spirit. And he put his Spirit within you. You didn't reform yourself and clean yourself up and come to Jesus. No, he saved you out of the pit, out of your sin. And then he came inside and he started to transform you. This is the work of God. He lives within you personally. And remember that God saved you for a very particular purpose, verse 7, so that being justified, being declared righteous by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. God saved you so that you might inherit eternal life, that you might have heaven in the presence of Jesus Christ for all of eternity. That is God's desire and intent for you. And God's desire and intent for the people of Beaumont, the people of your, of your family, your immediate family, your extended family, the people you go to work with every day. God saved you so that you would have the hope or confidence of eternal life, not the fear and dread of eternal destruction. And God left you here in this world. He sent you out into society so that the people of verse 3 might come to know the wonderful reality of verse 7. The people of verse 3 might come to know the hope of eternal life. One evening this last week, uh, I was out in our yard playing in a kiddie pool with our kids. I don't fit in it very well. But there we all were together in the kiddie pool and we, we were in the pool and we all had cups. We were playing with the cup and I don't know how, we made up this really silly game. It was actually just a really stupid game to be honest, but the kids thought it was great. They thought it was hilarious and tons of fun. Laughing, cackling, giggling. What the game was, we were basically all there in a row with cups in our hand. And the person on the end of the row would fill up their cup and dump it in the next person's cup. And that person would dump it in the next person's cup. And, the next, and it's just this endless cycle of passing your water to the next person. Everybody's laughing. Everybody's cackling. It's so much fun. Why? None of us know. But it's great. And as we're passing this cup from one person to the next, I think that, that silly game very much... That idea, I think, very much captures so much of what this text is all about. Jesus took 
uh, the cup of his goodness and his loving kindness. And he poured it out on you. He gave it to you. And you can sit there, you can take your 70, 80 years of life here on earth and you can walk around with your wonderful cup of God's goodness and grace and salvation. And you can celebrate it and you can rejoice in it. But that's that's not how this is supposed to work. If the game I'm playing with my kids, one of the sudden, the kid in the middle is just like, no, 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 pass it on. (laughs) That's how this fun game works. And if you do that as a Christian life, I mean, God pours all this goodness out on you. He saves you and I just want to Enjoy my cup of God's goodness. That's not how God ever intended it to be. You you take it and you receive it and you celebrate it and you praise God for it and then you go out and you pass it on to the next person. You can't save anyone, but you can show them the goodness and loving kindness of Jesus and share the hope and goodness of Christ to the people all around you. It's your job to pass it along. And you do that by the way you interact with those who have not yet met Jesus. And when you live that way, uh, that's when windows, I think, start to open. Opportunities start to open for you to share the good news, the particulars of the hope with other people. God wants you to portray Christ clearly to society. Don't forget how God saved you. If you live meditating on that, celebrating that, rejoicing that, it will change the way you interact with the people all around you. I want you to look at verse 8 with me as we wrap up. Concluding all this, what he's just said, we read in verse 8, the saying is trustworthy. What we just read about how God saved us, that's trustworthy. And probably it would even stretch back into what was said way back in verse 1. But with a focus on God's saving work, that saying is trustworthy. And I want you to insist on these things with the Cretan people. So that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote, to fully give themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. God wants you to portray Christ clearly to society. Would you bow with me? And let's ask God's grace for help in that this morning.